What's up, Videolanders? I'm your host, Brad Hawkins. Quick reminder, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Video Land. Tonight, I had the epic privilege of talking with the dude who inspired the Big Lebowski, Jeff Dowd. This year marked the 20th anniversary of the Big Lebowski, so what better way to celebrate than by talking with the real dude himself? This conversation was a real treat for me. The Big Lebowski is one of my favorite films of all time, and Jeff Dowd was an awesome guest. In this episode, Jeff talked about everything from Big Lebowski, religion, politics, to legally drugging one of the first Blair Witch screenings. If you're a Jeff Dowd fan, you already know he can go on some long-winded rants. If you're not a fan yet, then hopefully you will be by the time this podcast ends. Jeff has a very unique voice. He's a mile-a-minute kind of guy, and sometimes he's hard to understand, but that's just Jeff Dowd. I started editing this podcast, and about a quarter of the way through, I decided just to let it go. I mean, how do I edit the dude? You can't. You just have to let him ramble on and tell his stories. But I had a great time. Seriously, tonight is a highlight for me. I talked with the dude for almost two hours while drinking white Russians. Not many people can say that. Not to mention a learning experience. Sometimes you have to just put the interview questions to the side and just let the magic happen. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Please welcome his dudeness, Duder, the El Duderino himself, Jeff Dowd. Welcome to Video Land, Jeff. Uh, how are you? Where are you located right now? I'm in Lafayette, Indiana. Uh, fantastic. So, Jeff, uh, you're an interesting guy, man. You have an interesting story. Uh, there's a lot I want to cover tonight, but uh, let's start by talking about Big Lebowski. Um, it recently celebrated its 20-year anniversary just a few months back. What are your thoughts on the success of the movie all these years later? Well, obviously, it's got a, a tremendous following. Um, the fact that it's successful isn't surprising. Um the, because it's so good in so many ways, um, you know, all the kind of spin-off type stuff like Lebowski Fests and, um, you know, these other things, the Dudism, religion and stuff like that are, are you know, sociological phenomena, which are phenomenally interesting. You know, one can look at, at Lebowski Fest and understand it in retrospect, the appeal of it. Um, you know, I just went to one in Los Angeles Um but, you know, who would have known, you know? The film itself is in a world where expectation is everything. And I don't just mean the film world. I mean all, all aspects of life. You know, the, the, the situation, particularly with the critics, but also with you know, normal people, is in almost all movies, most movies, the characters make some kind of arc, you know, and become whole, so to speak. Um, and in Big Lebowski, um, the third, and it all happens in the third act in the end. In the Big Lebowski, it has an existentialist third act. And there was no preparation for that. So people go into something expecting the dude is going to come to some, you know, big revelation or uh, catharsis. But that doesn't happen. And so you're kind of let down. In second viewing, when people watched without that expectation, they loved it. They had a different expectation, and that expectation was just to go with the satire, the irony, the great writing, the great acting, and 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 kind of you know the holy fool aspect of the dude and all that. So um, you know that kind of explains that aspect of it. Um, the fact that people it become has become a sociological phenomenon is 
is something that's that's you know quite interesting. Um, you know, I mean, obviously you had things like Rocky Horror Picture Show and and and, and Star Trek that did somewhat the same thing. The <laughs> difference with the Lebowski people and the Star Trek people, to say something very general, is the Lebowski people um, a have to have a tremendous sense of irony and satire to get what Joel Nathan is getting at. Not that they don't do lots of sight gags and other stuff that anybody would like, but um, but uh, but also they party and they like to have fun, and they're not a bunch of nerdy types, you know, etc. They come to have a good time, and people watch that movie. I would say most people watch that movie with friends in their living room. Still, if you do the numbers, most people have watched it at home and most people have probably watched it with friends. Um, so it becomes kind of a, a friend-type viewing thing, which not all movies are, and this movie has become more than that. It's not that you don't watch a Judd Apto movie with friends and enjoy it, but this one has become like, oh, we're going to watch the Bowski, let's get a bunch of people together, and that's what happens. It's also, by the way, crossed over big time into to for example it is now like a huge thing at thanksgiving and christmas with republican family families. not to mention the fact that almost every fireman has seen it because they sit around the firehouse yeah multiple multiple times everybody in the armed forces has seen it and everybody on every band every sports team has seen it okay (laughs) um to, to some degree when i say every i mean every okay um, and it's it's a huge phenomenon because they can put it on for ten or fifteen minutes and get a few laughs. Okay. What what was your opinion um, on Big Lebowski when when you walked out of the theater twenty years ago? Did you like it? Yeah, I liked it. I did like it, but it was the same kind of situation. Uh, and I hadn't read the script first. I knew a, 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 a fair amount about it, but but um, yeah, I look. I saw it in the screening room. You know, in Beverly Hills with, I don't think, a lot of people, um, you know. So, um, yeah, no, I did like it, but you know, I, it's something I had to kind of get with and, and all that. Um, I'll tell you a couple of stories. When Joe and Ethan were first going to make it, I got a call, and it was like, you're going to make this movie with Goodman and, and Bridges. And, and, and status that these boys are, you know, the guys let me hang for a little bit knowing, you know, and, you know, I'm thinking, okay, if they get John Goodman to play me, it's going to be some insane Hollywood ne'er-do-well. You know, women are going to see me on the opposite side of the street and go running the opposite way, you know. <laughs> and after a bit, they said, don't worry, dude, it's Jeff Bridges. So, anyhow, um, but, um, yeah, so, um, no, I'm, I mean, you know, the movie is, 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 like all Coen Brothers movies, is extremely well written, and it's written for actors, and it's uh, you know, and, and it's populated with you know great actors. If you look at the cast, you know, yeah, it's, it's it is it's so amazing though. When you look back, I mean, in '98, how critics and and moviegoers got it wrong. I mean, I was one of them. You know, uh, I remember watching this movie probably '98, '99. And it, I didn't get it. You know, it went over my head. And now, you know, um, honestly, it's my one of my top ten movies of all time. Yeah, it's again, it wasn't set up. Uh, this isn't a criticism because it's hard to understand this. Um, but in retrospect, in Monday morning quarterbacking, 
it wasn't set up right for the expectation. That's just about the third act. It needed to be set up. And, and because it was, um, you know, pushing different exploration of different kinds of genres and mixing and matching. And, and that, um, and, you know, probably coming off Fargo, which it did come off of, you know, which was an Academy Award winning script and performance. Uh, didn't Fran win an Academy Award for that too, right? I, I believe so. Yeah. And, and the script as well. So, um, you know, which, but, but Fargo uh, is a traditional movie, okay? Uh, and, you know, it's a, it's a, in some ways, a kind of reverse fish out of water thing, right? Um, and so, you know, and, 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 and you have somebody, you know, a center of good to root for, which is Fran, and, and, and you know, against all the nincompoops and, you know, that she's trying to deal with. Uh, and, and so you're coming from that into something which look it's you know let me go deep with you here you know Raymond Chandler you know of Big Sleep fame you know Big Sleep was much much criticized for being hard to figure out and being convoluted and all that you know well you know it is as convoluted as, as in some ways as um, The Big Lebowski is but so the original source for this, in, in a certain being very Chandler-esque LA film noir, albeit on nitrous oxide or you know take the drug of your choice, but <laughs> uh, but um, you know in itself, and I happened to see Big Sleep again about two or three weeks ago, which is a phenomenal movie and totally holds up. Um, but you know even if you go back to that, that movie was much criticized too as being hard to figure out and even though you had you know the likes of you know not just Chandler but you know Faulkner and all kinds of people as well to that thing you know but um, you know the script and everything so so um, you know it's I don't, I don't think you know the critics were properly prepared so so how you set up something is very important. And Big Lebowski, and there's, I'm not pointing any fingers here whatsoever, wasn't, in retrospect, wasn't set up well enough for the critics. Audiences is another thing. It's not that the audiences saw it and rejected the word of mouth was bad. Is that it didn't open, you know, enough to get an audience. Uh, but um, do I think the film could have worked at that time in history had it been done marketed differently? The answer is yes, I do. Okay. I actually, I actually do. Um, you know, uh, which is kind of, if one is probing, oh, was it ahead of its time or something? No, I don't think so. Was it too much for its time? No, I don't think so. It was not set up that, that you're seeing something that works on different levels but is not a traditional movie and most of us are used to going to see traditional movies even if they may have untraditional characters and they're still traditional okay in yeah. terms of story huh? how do you think it would open today if it was released do you think it would be uh, do you think people would get it yes but once again it's all about setting up the expectation with our audiences critics all kinds of people okay and, and getting the follow but you wouldn't just Look, I've been involved in marketing of specialized films, and you can't just open a film like a Hoosiers or a Gandhi or even a War Games or a, you know, Neil Young thing or Ferngully or Blair Witch the way you would, you know, Rocky Four, you know. 
Spider-Man 3 or whatever, you know. Yeah. You, you, you need, you know, TLC and, you know, specialized, you know, how you position a film, so to speak, in the marketplace. Yeah, not, and, not, yeah because <laughs> 90s was really interesting for marketing non-traditional films. I mean, you had Pulp Fiction, Fight Club, um, and, and Big Lebowski. I mean, three of those movies right there, I walked out of the theater scratching my head like, what the hell did I just watch? And again, uh, two of those three are probably in my top ten ever made. You know, Pulp Fiction and Big Lebowski. What was the other one you said? Uh, Fight Club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, don't yeah. Th I think it did pretty, you know, I think it was uh, poorly received, you know, as well. I think it was just marketing these non-traditional films in the 90s. Yeah, well, it's a challenge, you know. It's not, it's not, and it's, it is easier to Monday more quarterbacking, but, but, um, but, you know, you need a lot of preparation with different kinds of films, you know. Um, for example, with Hoosiers, when we discovered that women liked it more than men, by the way. Really? Uh, yep. Um, that informed everything about how we marketed the film. Okay? Um, and it's not that men didn't like it, it's that women liked it more than men. You wouldn't think that. So, and by the way, why do women like it more than men? Because it's about two really screwed up men who get their act together. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that doesn't always happen in movies. And basketball is the most accessible to all sports. And the guys in Hoosiers are wearing short shorts and, and they're all, and all the guys in basketball look real good. Okay. So, and, and women have good memories of it from high school and stuff like that. So, so, uh, it turned out that women liked it a lot. So if we could screen the hell out of the movie for women everywhere in all the cities, you know, but you have to know what you have, you know, um, fundamentalist. You know, so you have to figure out what are the different markets for your film, who are the different kinds of people like it for different reasons. Not demographics, but values, etc. So, what happened is, you know, so yes, I think Lebowski would be successful now, and, um, you know, um, because the comedy and the satire play so well, and, and also, the, the the thing that people like about the dude is the dude is a holy fool. He tells it like it is, okay? Yeah. The, there is a holy fool. It was the original St. Francis, by the way. But uh, but to go into more stuff, it's the, the gesture in the royal court. The one person who told the truth, uh, but did it wrapped up in silliness and comedy um, and etc. okay? And, and that has a tradition in, you know, the comics of today, you know? Um, and so the dude kind of, it tells it like it is, and Joel needs to make make the characters stoned all the time, so he doesn't give so he doesn't give a damn. So he's free to from the fears of 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 work and other things that where we have to put on a mask every day, very often at at work or worse yet in relationships. I mean, imagine two gay people being in love. They have to put on a mask to their family and friends that they're in love. I mean, you know, how bad was that or is it still at times, you know? Um, you know, so people like it and I get this because I meet tons of people. They like that aspect of the dude that he tells it like it is in a world where many of us can't often do that, okay? You know, so at a time like today where you have a prevaricating president who tells it like it isn't on a daily basis, um, you know, the, you know, that kind of character is appreciated even more, you know? Yeah. Uh, as long as you don't put your foot in your mouth like Samantha B, and, you know, when trying to make a, a righteous point, you know? 
um, you know, you'll be all right, you know. I don't think in my lifetime I've ever seen a movie like Big Lebowski go from, you know, box office flop to one of the most worshipped of its generation. It's so interesting. But uh, you're uh, you're the real-life inspiration for the dude. So tell us, how did you meet the Coen brothers, and, and how did you guys, uh, you know, form this iconic character? How did it come about? You know, Joel Neeson came by to visit, and, and so there are these two guys going around in circles trying to pitch me Bud Simple, their first film, which was in post. Only because the investors said, go see this guy. Now, keep in mind, there's no Sundance yet, okay? There's no publicity out on it. There's no Sundance Film Festival. It's four years away. And if you've seen Blood Simple, it's very hard to pitch. But yeah. uh, uh, And and it's three hours later, and I'm down in the West Village, and, you know, McDougal Street, and I run into him on the street. And we have a cup of coffee or something and talk, and it's, you know, a whole different kind of vibe. And I helped get the some completion money for Bud Simple, um, which we did some editing and you know, took eight minutes out of the first 28 and some other things and helped market it. And um, I actually threw a party for it in L.A. at a bowling alley on Pico a couple blocks from the beach in Santa Monica. And you'll no- you'll notice that the dude never bowls in the movie, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I noticed that. Okay, okay so he gives shots of me bowling in the background. But, but the... But the but so it's also kind of a MacGuffin, so to speak, too. It's just, a, you know, an excuse to, and without doing too much of a spoiler, um, you know, another thing that doesn't happen in this movie, I will do the spoiler, but, you know, most people have seen it and why, what the hell. Um, the, the, they don't even have a bowling tournament in the end of this movie. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's, set, up, it's set up like 15 times. <laughs> they, I mean, talk about things that, that don't happen. Not only does the dude and other characters don't have an arc, they don't even <laughs> fulfill the pot. You know, I mean, who you, you, you get so set up that Jesus and Walter are going to go at it in, you know, in the tournament, um, even though if it's postponed, you know, um, etc. And it never happens. You know what? You the know? movie's so good, I don't even care, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but if you're expecting that, yeah, yeah. And, and you've been set up, and you don't need much of a setup in movies. You need one beat of a setup on TV shows for people to expect it to pay off. And, and audiences pay attention. Yeah. Shows like shows like CSI and stuff like that, you got to pay, which are top-rated shows, I'm just pointing out. If you go to the bathroom for two minutes, you're out of the show, man. You are, I mean, I'll do little reminders, but you got to pay attention to all these, you know, cop shows out there because they're dropping hints all the time and, you know, you know, red earrings and this and that. Every last one of these cop shows, and there's some of the highest rated shows, right? Yeah, I, um, I, I bet there were some critics in 90, 1998 that was like, there wasn't even a fucking bowling tournament in their reviews, weren't there? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so it, it, you know, I'm just saying, it, you know, you could have a, uh, as you, look, you could take other movies, take uh, some good, really good movies that, 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 that just didn't pay off in the third act, okay? And that's kind of what happened. Any way you look at it, it doesn't pay off on a character level or on a plot level unless you say, oh, I get it. It's all existential thing. It's not, you know, going to be what you normally expect to pay off, okay? Um, but, you know, you normally would not set up something 15 times and then not pay it off, like the bowling tournament, okay? You know, um, yeah. I mean, what if you would? What if in Hoosiers you had no final game? <laughs> no shit, right? That's hilarious, man. <laughs> you know, well, you know, and, and it's kind of like that, you know. Um, so, so you know, it's it's hard not to be disappointed when you're when you just set up for something, you know. Um, 
So that's that's part of the thing. But but the acting is so good and the writing is so good and the satire is you know it's and and it's also you know obviously one of the things people like is the quotability of it. So you see it particularly used in financial stuff and in sports all the time. If you put Google Alert on or something like that, you know things like over the line and stuff like that are used on a daily basis. Anyhow, um, so yeah. I mean, so are you in the fictional version of the dude? Pretty similar. I mean, do you like? Do you enjoy White Russians, bowling, smoking pot? I mean, are those purely cinematic? No, no. The White Russians are in there. If I was to ask you in the summer when you were eighteen, mm-hmm. except for your personal maybe drink, did you and your friends drink the same different <laughs> kinds of drinks that you drank when you were nineteen, twenty, and twenty-one? The answer would be no. Yeah, you were trying out different things. Let's try tequila sunrises. Let's try white Russians. Let's try Harvey Wallbangers. Let's try out this, you know, a couple times a summer or something like that. White Russians are in there because Joel needs to get more jokes out of a white Russian than they can out of a gin and tonic or a vodka soda, right? Yeah. You know, I, I mean, they get like 10 jokes out of the white Russian. They get sight gags. I mean, you know, my favorite thing is the non-dairy creamer to make the white Russian, right? Um, anyhow, you know, so they get a lot of jokes out of it. That's why I said, well, Joel needs to put stuff in movies that they can get humor out of or irony or satire okay think of it that way and then that's just Lebowski any movie okay so that's why they they do these things so the answer is no we drank white wrestlers for a little bit but um but they and they read that somehow or something and and decided to go with that or 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 been created or something like that but no I I didn't sit around doing white wrestlers all the time what about bowling or smoking pot not really no no, I wasn't much of a, you know, the same way you, most people work, you know, you might go bowling two or three times a year with your friends yep. for some fun or something like that, but no, I never really um, got into the bowling thing, and once again, that was there for the same reason, it's, a, it's they could get a lot out, you know, they're, they're smart opportunistic guys, and when they see something they can do something with have some fun once they go for it, you know. Not to mention that, you know, you got an Academy Award winning cinematographer and Roger Deakins, um, you know, who won this year. You got guys like T Bone Burnett and, you know, doing a you know, wall to wall soundtrack and, and um yeah, just, uh, what's his name, the composer, um his name is Jump on Chris Roth, made a great composer. Anyhow anyhow, so you know, you you know, they they, they brought it all alive and stuff like that, you know. Um, but what was your question? Yeah, so how much so how much of the Big Lebowski movie is based on a true story? I mean, did someone piss on your rug? Is there a little is there a little Larry running around or is that all again cinematic? The Seattle Seven stuff, the mannerisms, the body language, the clothes, except the jellies. Jeff brought the jellies to the thing that's the shoes. Um, that's all me. Um, the story is Raymond Chandler. Okay. Okay. Uh, mixed in with whatever they want to mix it in with, but it's not Raymond Chandler. It's it's the spirit of you know Raymond Chandler. I mean the the MacGuffin being you know the rug you know in Maltese Falcon. It's you know the Maltese Falcon. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But um, so Walter, so, Donnie, and Jesus. Those are all fictional characters as well, right? No, Walter's kind of based, from my understanding, on John Milius and stuff like that to some degree. You know, they kind of, you know, 
actually from Peter, uh, whose name is escaping right now. Um, he had he had the line of the rug ties the room together at his place. Um, but the moment to moment to stuff is very much me. Okay, the physicality that we. So let me put it this way: I'll be out in the street somewhere, and all kinds of places in all kinds of cities. And somebody will say to me something like, you ever see that movie, The Big Lebowski? You kind of <laughs> remind me of that character. That's awesome. Uh, and I don't look like the guy in The Big Lebowski right now. Okay? Uh-huh. I mean, I don't have a goatee, you know, and that kind of stuff. We have long hair and stuff and all that. But, you know, so somehow this happens quite a bit of people, total strangers, who've seen the movie. Now, maybe subliminally they saw him in some interview with me and they're making a connection, but that's all possible. But but it's just the feeling. Jeff Bridges and I were born within two weeks of each other, okay, in California. So we have very, very similar cultural backgrounds. In other words, we heard a Beach Boys song or a Beatles song or a Temptation song the same day when it broke, right? Or when Kennedy was shot, we were, you know, both in eighth grade class or whatever you know or whatever so you know so we come out of a very similar cultural experience okay and physically we're the same size and all that kind of stuff so so you know in that sense um you know he captured a lot of kind of that yes i smoke pot but i don't smoke pot all day long (laughs) so if i was negotiating on pot i would give away my kids you know yeah um you know, so, um, but, but, you know, I do smoke pot on weeknights and weekends and stuff like that, but, um, but the, um, so, but it's really the spirit of a character, okay? It's, it's the guy who is irreverent, who doesn't play the games that people are trying to play, whether it's the, Jackie Treehorn or the Sheriff of Malibu or the older Big Lebowski guy or even Walter, you know, who's, you know, he doesn't play along with that stuff. And and Walter, of course, is, you know, it's a buddy movie too. And Walter is the buddy, you know, he's the, you know, the buddy who's getting the other guy in trouble. You know, he's the Mel Gibson and Lethal Weapon. He's Butch and Butch and Sundance. You know, Annie any movie so you know Walter plays that role you know extremely well he's always gonna get the you know dude more trouble he's always gonna have a new plan of doing something or another you know and of course that's all fictionalized and stuff but yeah you and everybody you know has had a Walter in their life okay when you were 14 or 15 or 17 some friend of ours that almost got us all killed okay but we still kept as a friend, right? Yeah. You know, you know, and we all know that person. Okay, every girl knows that person. Every guy knows that person. You know, pretty much. And so, you know, Walter plays that. You know, the guy who's always gonna, you know, in many ways, it's his movies. He's always gonna push the plot forward because of some new insane thing he's coming up with, right? That's gonna drag the dude into, you know. Some fans want a sequel, man, uh, to The Big Lebowski. Do you want one, or should it be left alone, you think? Um, do I want one? Do I sit in here hoping there'll be one? No, not necessarily. Uh, do I think it would be great? Yes, probably. If Joel and Ethan did it, yes, they, they wouldn't do it and screw it up, okay? Um, so if somebody else did it and the story didn't quite work, 
Um, there would be lots of challenge. You know, it, the chemistry would have to, and the story would have to be really special. If the film worked, it was really, really, really good. It would have to be very, very commercial as well. Yeah. Okay, but but the standards would be very high, much higher than the first time because it would be look. It would be kind of like a book where a lot of people had a beloved book and they see the movie, and sometimes the movie, for lots of reasons, doesn't quite hold up to the book, possibly because it's shorter, possibly because it really misses it, possibly because it was kind of good. It's not what people took from the book, even though the movie is good too, you know. So you can go at other movies and say, okay, but I don't think it's quite the same with, let's say, Star Trek or Superman or Rocky. Um but the standards are super, super high. Well, there was some criticisms of, let's say, you know, Rocky. I'm forgetting Rocky too now, but, but, but you know, because the first one was so good, you know. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you got to kind of live up to that. And that goes for sports and everything else too, you know. Yeah. So if you set the bar high, now the bar is set very high. And there are a whole bunch of you know, newbies, so to speak, that have come around to it. Um, and and for people who have watched Big Lebowski more than once, um, you know, five times, ten times, or in part, you know, a few times, it's gonna it's gonna have to be done right. Obviously, I can off the top of my head, or anybody else can off the top of their head, come up with you know a starting point because it's set up at the end by the stranger and all that. Um, Look, I take it in a different way. My my whole thing is I'm personally, as you may have read, I'm, I have a book and I have a show and, and an internet connection called you know um, our classic tales to fuel our future, which we're t- doing stories that are classic tales. Not, but I don't mean Hansel and Gretel. I mean some classic tale of yours or mine or a friend's, and those stories are um, you know we know work. So, but they tend to have examples within them of people kind of getting their some aspect of their life a little bit more together too. That's not the point of the story, but um, but they're great adventure stories. You know, there are versions of really, really good classic tales. So I'm kind of carrying the dude spirit for it, so to speak. That's cool. I'm not that not that it's a dude thing. It's to just add some, but you know, it's plenty of dude stuff in it. And it's not that much about showbiz. Maybe it's a quarter of the stories or showbiz, you know, like the starting of Sunday has or the whole thing with Neil Young or something because they're really good stories. But, but they're classic. But most of them are, you know, being in South America for a year or traveling, you know, around in Europe with the Living Theater the Rolling Stones or something like that. But, or Seattle 7 type stuff and that kind of stuff. But, but so that's kind of what I'm doing for my part. You know, I'm not waiting around for another Lebowski film to come out now. Yeah. Uh, but but if it does, and if Joel and Ethan are, are involved, um, you know, they'll set the standards very, very, very high. You know? Well, what's your th- what's your thoughts on the Big Lebowski spinoff that's supposedly in production called Going Places that tells the story? Have, of I don't have any, I don't have any thoughts on it because I don't know anything about it. You know. Uh, I mean, I wish John all the, you know, I know John, I wish him all the best, but I don't know, you know, anything about the, you know, any, I'm not hiding any details from you that I know of, okay? He's populated with some good, really good actors, okay, obviously, and, and he's a really smart guy, and so, um, 
you know, I guess is it'll be really good, you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of fans would like to see Jesus on the screen again, you know. That'd be fun. Jesus steals the show, man. <laughs> he it's, does, it's, it's, but... This scene is one of the great scenes of all time movie history. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, man! So we, we hit on it briefly, but uh, what was your what was your first reaction when you heard about Lebowski Fest or the Church of the Latter Day Dude? It, it's almost five hundred thousand members. I mean, so like it probably took a couple years for that to get going, right? When they called you up and they're like, "Do you want to come to a Lebowski Fest?" We like, are you, are you kidding me? I mean, what was that like? You guys had had it for a year already, right? I think so. I think I went to the second one in Louisville. And um, it wasn't... Um, I didn't know exactly what I was stepping into, to tell you the truth, <laughs> um, in terms of it. And it wasn't defined as much at all, okay? As it is, as, as, as it's become, okay? And so the one I went to was in a motel, um, and, excuse me, and one of the funny things, by the way, is it had a, their version of an AMPM or a 7-Eleven, what the market was, across the street from, I think it was Holiday Inn, and by 4 o'clock in the afternoon, all dairy products were gone. Wow. Oh, I mean, I mean, even yogurt. I mean, forget it, okay? Anything to do with dairy was gone. It was <laughs> wiped out from that place, okay? Some people can make white Russians, yeah. Anyhow, so <laughs> it was it was very interesting to go. I love it. I, I, rather than talking about what was my impression before going to it, um, because I didn't have much of an impression, better to talk about my impression of going to it. And, <laughs> As I said, the people who were there were really, this is a high-end group of people. This is doctors and lawyers and Indian chiefs, okay? This is, this is uh, who, 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 all kinds of people. And so, uh, and couples and, you know, this and that. And, it's, and the thing that's, excuse me, singularly great about Lasky Fest is they have two nights. And the first night, they have a band. Jeff Bridges has come a couple times, but they have a really good band, cover band, usually, or some kind of thematic band. And and then they show the movie, which is a big, fun experience for people because very few people have ever seen it, you know, with a thousand or more people in a theater, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of times they show it on film, okay? And so very few people have seen it on film with a thousand people in the theater, okay? So it's, it's that's kind of an experience. But, the great, unique, unique night is the second night at the bowling alley where they always have the biggest bowling alley in the area because they need a lot of lanes, right? So in L.A., they do it down in Glen Territory down there at the Fountain Bowl, right around the corner where Glen grew up and his video story was. Video story was at the Long Beach and stuff. Anyhow, and it goes to me, so that's so, so. Um, and people come dressed up in costumes, and I highly recommend people go out to Scott Lebowski Fest costumes. Google it. Uh, well, right, real quick, you just sold me on it because my wife and I are attending the first our first Lebowski Fest in Chicago in September, and we we didn't get the bowling tickets yet. You know, we were talking about it, but you just sold me on it. So, oh, the bowling tickets went by far. Let me just keep going on this bowling thing, okay? People don't just come dressed up as Maud and various versions of Maud, okay? Maud in a gown, Maud, you know, bathrobe, Maud, you know, the things for the bully, uh, or Dude, or Walter, 
certain bodies. They come dressed up as lions out of the movie. Okay, uh, absolutely brilliant. Um, and so there'll be two guys with a big guy there with a tablet, a staff, beard down his belly button, and a robe, and another guy in a Dodgers uniform. It says Kovac on it. I go, what do you guys? I go, oh, 3,000 years of tradition from Moses to Sandy Kovac. Okay, you know, I mean, you know, brilliant lines out of the movie that they've taken and made in the costumes, okay? Or a woman who's in a bed bath beyond, you know, uh, you know, shower curtain with all kinds of sea light on <laughs> and big breasts. And, 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 and that's what he used to go on the bosom of the Pacific Ocean, which is a line that's used when they put Donnie's asses there. So people come dressed up as a crime lab, 10 people, there's a whole thing, if you look at my Instagram, of these guys created something called Dude Air, and they had Dude Air tickets. And do that. It looks like just like real tickets and stuff. I mean, they really go out of their way to get very, you know, creative with, you know, various lines that are in the movie. Okay, not just the characters. I mean, it's an absolutely surreal theatrical experience. Phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal. Okay, and people bowl too, and they have contests and music and you know, drinking and all that stuff, but it's really the bizarre costumes, particularly if they bring in, they probably will in Chicago, you know. So, uh, real quick, I'll, I want to plug I'll probably the... come to that one my daughters are there, actually. So okay, I'm yeah, I was going to ask you that. So you think you might go to Chicago then? Yeah, I think I might. When is it, September or something? Yeah, September, I think middle of September, September 15th, okay. I believe. Yeah, yeah, I might be able to pull that off, yeah. So Anyhow, so, um, but yeah, the bowling thing is... It's a total, absolutely hilarious trip, you know. But not all people cover costumes, about half of them do, okay? So, but, 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 you know, so if it's going to be like 500 people in costumes, you know, that's you're going to, stuff like that. So, what do you think when you hear about the Church of the Latter-day Dude with almost 500,000 members of <laughs> religion? Yeah, I, 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 I don't Surprising, you know, interesting. I mean, I get it in the respect... Let me just say something about religion here, though. Look, I buy into about half of every single religion, right? Uh-huh. Um, you know, um, you know, do unto others, all that kind of stuff. It's universal. It's the second quarter or the second half of it, you know, like, where they start to get really weird and funky and, and frankly, mutually exclusive. I mean, it's this way or that way. That could be both ways, okay? So, so, um, and so I think... You know, I mean, frankly, I think we're going to be at a period where I bet you there's going to be some new religions in, in, in and I'm not, I'll keep the news and thing aside for a second. Uh, I will absolutely convince there'll be some new evolving religions uh, in the world, very much fem- female-oriented to some degree. Almost all religions, I'll leave. Buddhism and shit of that out of it. It's like, it's like you can't up on that. But almost all religions were invented to oppress oppress women and to keep property. Okay, period. Explanation point. Do you know do you why do you know why Catholics can't marry? No. Priest? Do you no. know why? No. Take a guess. Why know. did they want Catholic priests not to be able to get married? Man, I don't even know. I haven't really thought about it. Well, is it a purity thing? Is it giving to God? Is it, you know, is it, you know, why? Yeah, I can't even think of a good uh, good reason for it. I mean, you even look at uh, look at Star Wars for an example, how Jedi can't love, and it just seems like a downfall. 
Yeah, well, the reason Catholic priests can't get married is because the other first or whatever back in the second century. What happens if you're the okay? In every single city in the world, the people that have the best property are the military and the church, right? Yeah, they're up on the cliff. You know, I mean, just think of any city service. You know, that does that. They, you know, they get there, they get the best property, right? You know, with the best view, high street, and all that kind of stuff in the church, and, and, and the military too. You know, the view of the harbor and all that. Yes. What happens if the priest uh, has a family and, and and he dies? If the priest in the year two thousand and two after Christ has a family uh-huh. and he dies, what happens with the property? It goes back to the church, doesn't it? Goes to the family. Right, does it? Well, it might, right? Yeah. yeah. So the way to get rid of that problem is make it so priests can't have families, okay? Okay, I got you. I'm following you. That totally had to do with the property. They had nothing to do with sex, morality, or anything else. Unfortunately, the collateral damage is it ends up having a lot of priests, you know, going after choir boys, but, um, you know, any port in the storm. But, but, but it, hadn't, it wasn't a moral sexual thing. It was a property thing, okay? So back to Judaism, oddly enough, um, there's no doubt that people, that there's a need for spirituality in people's lives, okay? We absolutely are spiritual beings, but organized spirituality, uh, like the Catholic Church, has many sides of collateral damage to it, okay? And having lived in South America for a year, you really see it there, okay? Or sexual oppression, all kinds of stuff. And I lived in Italy for a year, too. So so the point being that people get this now, and they get how religion's been a very, very bad thing uh, in some ways. And, and whether you're, you know, a woman living in an Islamic state, or you're a woman living in a Catholic state, or you're a woman living... And ultimately, Protestant state, you're getting it. That kind of religion doesn't work for you or Mother Earth necessarily. And so I think new belief systems, well, they are evolving. They are, you know, obviously you see them in places like California, but so, but, and so then you have something like Judaism, which, you know, is not a serious, I don't want to say it's, I don't think it's a serious alternate religion as, let's say, the spin-offs from, you know, Protestant spin-offs, whether it's, you know, being Protestant or Catholic or Church of England and, or, you know, all the things that sprung, spun off of Christianity, all those things, those were serious new spin-offs, right? Yeah. Hey, we're, we're Lutherans, okay? You know, hey, we're Mormons, okay? You know, I'm a serious spin-off. Um, I don't think that to do this is a serious spin-off, like the way Lutherans thought they were a serious new church. But, It'd be interesting to see how those dudists you're talking about, because some of them do feel that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what that means to them, by the way. Or is it just a goofy thing, like, hey, screw you, my parents and my friends who you know, bought into whatever the, the formal religion is in our town. Exactly. We all bought it, and we know is bullshit, okay, come on, um, unless we're born again. And we know it's bullshit, so, you know, hey, I'm a dudist, so screw you. Which I think is, most of it's satirical, but but it's in a context of where it's changing spiritual time. And and where Mother Earth and the values of women are going to become very, very important versus the values of opportunistic men like Trump and and 
the business people, he stands for not the politicians, they, they're opportunistic too, but the people in business, this is their last hurrah to the likes of Exxon and, and stuff like that, and they all know it too, by the way, that's what the tax deal is about. The tax deal is all about giving people a beyond golden diamond parachute. Um, and see, not true. And there's no loyalty at Exxon. Well, believe me, or any of these companies, none. And so, anybody that protests anything, these guys are going to cave and they're going to give in, and change will come. Okay. Yeah. There's no. There's, this is not the Rockefellers of days of old. So I knew these guys. Okay, I grew up around a of these guys. Okay, the one class, so to speak. Uh, you know, and my father's step, my stepfather's father ran the biggest bank in America. Okay, but that didn't keep him wanting to do it. And we came around and all that. But but the point is, like, know, know these guys, and and they don't have any solidarity amongst them anymore, or or corporate things. You know, salary expense to that day. And the Fed, you know, well, you didn't expect that they wouldn't have any loyalty amongst themselves. Just get in there and get what you can. So that year is, is ending now. Hopefully the planet will not be destroyed before it ends, okay? Particularly environmentally. So, you know, that's, so the Tuna stuff all kind of comes in that context, you know? Um, interesting, you know, and... and and, and all that, you know. Yeah, it seems it seems pretty laid back. I was actually ordained on June first. <laughs> well, what does it mean? What did what do you? I don't really follow it. What yeah, it it's just you know the vow. Honestly, is just to take it easy and go with the flow, man. You know, don't uh, don't let life's worries get you down. You know, that's pretty much uh, the. Uh, uh, well, it's kind of like you know. Look, if you look at Jeff Bridges' book and stuff like that that he did, you know. Um, you know the book I'm talking about. I have to stand up or walk over there. Anyhow, the book with Bernie and stuff. But the, uh, hold on a second. I'm just saying this. Um, hold on one second. Uh, you still there? Yeah. Hold on, Yeah, the book Jeff did with uh, Bernie Glassman called "The Dude and the Zen Master." Okay. Yeah, check that out. But but. It's uh, um, it's very much um, you know he gets into it in that book, but you know um, and I've gone to a, spoken at Buddhist thing here, you know and the Buddhist I mean there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the Big Lebowski. Needless to say, okay. Um, you know, kind of Buddhist, you know, far out type stuff. <laughs> um, and, 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 and he gets into it if you look at the, this book, The Dude and the Zen Master, too, okay? So, you know, you can, and needless to say, you know, Joel and Ethan are flitting around various religions there, whether it's, and ideologies, whether it's neo socialism or anything else, okay? So they're, you know, they're kind of getting into that, you know, they're always into that kind of philosophy thing, you know. So, yeah, it's, it's to do some things, uh, as Truffaut says in Close Encounters with their kind, it's a phenomenon sociologique. <laughs> so I want to touch on a line of dialogue from the Big Lebowski. Um, in the movie, the dude says that he was a member of the Seattle Seven, an uh, anti-war movement during the Vietnam War. So you were really a part of the Seattle Seven, correct? Yes. So we have some younger listeners, so can you educate us on just what went down in Seattle? Just give us the highlight reel. 
Uh, well, let's, I, there's some parallels to the Trump thing. Nixon was, he inherited a war that from, from what well, going on since 1954, but, and even before, but, but that Kennedy got us into JFK more so, and then Lyndon Johnson got us so even more so, and then Nixon comes along as a half million Americans over there. And, and the anti-war movement. And Nixon, and there's also a lot of stuff going on around racism in the United States. In fact, you know, I think well, it was 150 cities had riots in, you know, 1968, stuff like that, including one in Washington, D.C., you know, within blocks of, you know, the White House and, and cities burning down, literally like Detroit. Um, and so, um, and there was a lot of protests on it. And Nixon developed what was called an enemies list. And the anti-war movement was very, very big. And the Chicago 1968 Democratic Convention, there were lots of protests, peaceful protests, and there was what was called a police riot, which you can look up and where the police actually came out and started to beat a lot of people. And, and out of that became the Chicago 7, also Chicago 8. Trap, and this one guy was probably CLA, they cut off the back Panther guy. But um, so it became Chicago 7. And it was decided that they would try to crush the anti-war movement. Keep in mind, there was an enemies list of all kinds of people like Paul Newman and, you know, Leonard Bernstein from the New York Philharmonic and every black congressman was on it and, you know, reporters and stuff. And, but they decided that they wanted to crush the anti-war movement and they were going to do 41 indictments of people in various cities. And because John Ehrlichman, who was the National Security Advisor at Eagle Crow, was E-G-I-L, was a liaison to the Justice Department and the White and, and, and the FBI, were both from a Seattle law firm. They thought it would be a good thing to place it out in Seattle, as did Jager, who were the head of the FBI. And and so, because it would be out of the limelight, they would do a test case there, okay? Little did they realize who they were taking out. Anyhow, so... This became, it wasn't just a kind of a case. There were 41 other cases in 41 cities ready to go within weeks of this case, okay? And 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 so this was the test market. And oddly enough, I'd be doing test markets and movies in Seattle <laughs> later, but, but lots of them. But, but um, and what happened was the judge was in cuts with the prosecution. That all came out, all this came out during the, Watergate stuff and the church committee and stuff. It's all public record, you know, and there's a book on it now and all that. Um, called, you know, uh, whatever the, what's your name's book about the movement on trial, but so I'll tell you in one second, but anyhow. Um, so the, the um, point being that the, um, sure, let me get the, uh, the book out so bad on titles. Um, Anyhow, the point being that um, that um, and they had spies with our defense collective and, and stuff. And a huge story on that. And guy tried to you know convince us to try to get us to kill. You know, I mean, it was they tried to murder us, all kinds of things. Damn. Um, but, I mean, this is all not kind of speculation. This is all very documented in federal court stuff I'm talking about that came out later, okay? And in congressional committees and, in, you know, so this, this is all, no, this is opinion. This is not just my opinion, man. Anyhow, so, um, and uh, we were winning the trial, so 
because we're tearing apart their supposed spies and stuff like that. Let me put this another way. There was a demonstration at the Chicago 7 trial in a lot of cities called the day after, the day after the trial. And the idea was when, when they were finally going to be sentenced for contempt, there would be demonstrations that they would block access to federal courthouses around the country um, peacefully. And there was one in Seattle, 3,000 people. When you have a, cons- but we were charged with conspiracy to destroy federal property. When you have a conspiracy, you have to have what's called overt act. Like if you and I said, let's rob a bank today on this phone call, that would be overt act number one. If you went and got the getaway car, that would be overt act number two. If I went and you know, the bank and said, stick them up, that would be overt act number three. We had 18 overt acts. At every wow. single overt act of our conspiracy, there were never less than 500 people there. And at every single overt act, newspapers was there, radio was there, and television was there covering it. So our overt acts were speeches that were covered by the press. Not exactly a conspiracy, okay? No. Um, and, and so right there, the whole thing fell apart, okay? But, but, but they, you know, this is pre-Watergate. One has to understand that they could get away with anything at that point, okay? Yeah. Uh, and 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 it wasn't, and we were in the midst of it tipping, but that took two or three years for that to all happen, okay? And we were on the front lines of that, you know? Um, and it was, um, I was only 20. It was a, you know, a, a scary prospect, so to speak, you know? How many um, people did you lead onto the highway for that protest? Well, that was, that was a, during, after Kent State happened, a lot of university, which was on May 4th, 1970, I believe, um, a lot of protests happened the next day because, you know, four students were shot and killed and, and the Kent State thing itself was coming after the invasion of Cambodia, a neutral state by Nixon, okay? in started bombing Cambodia, which was totally a neutral state, but anyway, and that led to demonstrations which led to the Kent State thing. And so there was a demonstration at the University of Washington and people decided to go to the freeway and you know, we kind of went out on the, we said go to the freeway. Uh, it was, I don't know, 15, 20,000 people. Wow. And then two days later it was 25,000 people. But, um, but it was very scary for a couple of reasons, several reasons. We were, if you look at the pictures that we, this freeway thing is the freeway bridge, which is maybe a mile long going from, University District to Capitol Hill with maybe a 500 foot drop, okay? And as we came on to the entrance on 45th Street, maybe the first 500 or thousands of people, you know, we're going onto a freeway and people are coming in at 70 miles an hour, right? Wow. And, and we, I mean, let me put it this way, had we not jumped to get out of the way of a bus, you know, at least 20 of us would have got squished, okay? Man. And, and, and so and the first bunch of us coming on, it's like the cars are yeah, breaking at 60, 70 miles an hour. The, the good thing that did not happen, by the way, the miracle that didn't, it's not just that we didn't get killed. We, you know, once they started stopping, we were out of the, you know, after the first 30 seconds, we were probably all right, a minute or so. It's that they didn't have a, you know, you know, a bumper to bumper thing that killed dozens of people, you know, right, you know, trying to break, you know, um, you know, um, and the backup went for 20 miles, but, but nobody got hurt. Um, but what did happen is, is we started to march across that bridge 
troopers on the other side in the middle. And they said, turn around and go back. And we said, no, we're not turning around and go back. And these guys, this Afghanistan was within 24 hours of a bunch of students being shot. Man. You know, at Kent State. And these guys are pointing their guns at us. And they're going, you're going back. I'm going, no, we're not. And, 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 and you, and, you were and, in the front of all this, right? Yeah, man, Tommy Byers and stuff, yeah. And so, man. and so, and so the point was, and they were, I was, well, I don't know, I'll get to it, but the point is that, um, had they let loose with tear gas and all kinds of other stuff, which I, more, at that point, I, there could have been tons of people like went off the side, okay? And they couldn't retreat backwards. It would have been like total insanity. Yeah. But we basically negotiated something, so to speak, that we're not going that way out. We'll get off the first exit. <laughs> yeah. So we all crossed the bridge, got off the first exit, and then got back on the next exit, okay? But, um, you know, but it was, but it was, you know, it was kind of funky. And then the next day it was more like 25,000 people. Is that is that uh, where you got arrested then? Huh? Is that where you got arrested on the uh, that protest? Yeah, no, no, no. Hold on one second. Hold on just one second, okay? Okay. This one. I just want to. Um, uh, I just want to look something up. No, oh, you're fine. Yeah. Uh, there's a book called Protest on Trial: The Seattle Seven Conspiracy. Okay. Protest on Trial of the Seattle Seven Conspiracy that just came out by Kit, K-I-T, Baki, B-A-K-K-E. It's called Protest on Trial, the Seattle Seven Conspiracy. And, it's, and it pretty much gets into a lot of this stuff, okay? Okay. And it, I mean, it literally came out weeks ago. Okay. So, so you know, people can check out that book if they want to get more than Seattle Seven. But the big point of this whole thing is we stood together and we stood up to these guys. And in the end, truth won out, okay, in a lot of ways. And in fact, the Republican jury, and it was a Republican jury because they had moved the trial to coma. It changed the jury pool, right? Wow. Um, and so we had 11 out of two. And after day one of doing what's called voir dire, we just said, we could see what was happening. And, you know, and we just said, you know, we're so innocent, we'll take who's in the box, which was like a brilliant move. And we had two of our defendants chipping. Marshall and Michael Warner defended themselves so they could talk all the time like lawyers, right? So we weren't just sitting there looking guilty. So, you know, we did a very, very good job of uh, of putting the trial on, you know, putting the war on trial. Now, that's not where we were arrested. We were arrested from the demonstration on February 17th and we were arrested on April 17th but, and then put in trial in November of 1970. And we all went to jail for contempt and I went, you can look it up, that picture of me putting a Nazi flag with one of the defendants. <laughs> we brought it in on, to put it on the judge's bench because we accused him of being a good German and good Germans were the people wow. that went along with as Hitler was and the Nazis were coming to a rising in power and they didn't so, about it, so was that just you that put the uh, Nazi flag on the judge's bench? No, it was Michael Abel's one of the other defendants, and one of the lawyers carried it in under his jacket for us. Yeah, that's pretty awesome, though, man. That's pretty. Uh, that's pretty yeah, rebellious. We had Evan made up the night before by somebody from the Seattle Rep. <laughs> I'd never seen a Nazi flag before. Have you ever seen one in person? No, not in person. No. 
unbelievably powerful symbol. You can see why it was the Native Americans and the Nazis liked the symbol, but I um, mean, it's really powerful. And she made up this huge flag the night before when he put it on his bench and with the you know, express purpose of getting it out in front of the, you know, which we know we got two of the top stories, two of the networks at the top of the fold on the New York Times or works, you know. Anyhow, um, and that's what you guys say, say he's a good German for going off the racism and going off the war in Vietnam. And that's so, what you guys got prison time for? Did you guys get prison time? Yeah, I got a year in prison. Man, that is nuts, it's, isn't it? It's, it's six months. It was fantastic. It was a wonderful experience. We're glad. Well, you see the stories in the book and the, and the show about the prison stuff. It's fantastic. Yeah, I'm going I'm to spread that book around. That sounds like an interesting read. Well, yeah, yeah, it's not out. You'll, you'll, let me just say something very clear. It'll be a number one book and by far and away the number one show. Okay? Oh, nice. You'll be, every director you love and every... Nobel Prize winner and every actor, everything involved. So it's going to be wow. very, very great. So our so, classic tales to fuel our future. Okay. You know, so, you, know you, won't, you, won't, you won't be able to, you won't miss it, believe me. You can okay. even be part of it. You can have a classic tale you can add to it. So that'll be good. Excellent. So I'll leave all the rest of those details for the books. Um, so, but I do want to ask you, you know, since you've been fighting the system since the 60s and 70s, you know, do you think we've taken a few steps back? Well, obviously both, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, we've made, look, there's a, let's talk about the good news. There's tremendous positive consciousness, okay? The fact, look, my father and my stepfather are both, you know, world-renowned economic historians, okay? Um, and, I mean, Einstein saw my stepfather as one of the most significant intellectuals of the 20th century. You know? And my father, Tyron Zinn, would say, is our most trusted economic historian. But, but the point is, so I know a little bit about this stuff. The the and like they're both very involved in the civil rights movement, stuff like that. And my stepfather's did the Supreme Court case while well, we had freedom of speech called New Hampshire versus Sweezy in nineteen fifty four, which got, you know, the right people saying they want to get not that, you know, you couldn't go to jail later, but it technically gave them the right. Um, anyhow, so the point being uh that yes, we've made so much progress in so many ways in in terms of racism and, and equality and LGBTQ stuff and 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 consciousness. On the other hand, you know, I mean, best of times, worst of times, and all that. You know, you have a best of times, worst of times situation. So, you know, you can't have a you can't say this what I call the male violent virus pandemic going on right now, the male violent virus pandemic. Uh, and, you know, who would have thunk that there would have been school shootings or people driving cars on the baseball fields or people, you know, walking around, you know, you don't even need a gun, you know, with a knife and stuff. So this, and, and, you know, 90, 90% of this, uh, you know, 98% of this is, 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 is violent males, okay, and often young violent males. Um, the good news is there's solutions to this, you know, my friends and colleagues from Peace Jam, that's one word, P-A-C-E, jam, like, you know, jam on your toaster music, peacejam.org, with 18 Nobel Prize winners like the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu. They, we work with kids at risk, Don and Yvonne started it. And, you know, the over a million, you know, quarter kids at risk, they worked with who were, you know, violent, gun-toting, gangsters, 16-year-olds. Not a single one of them has been rearrested. Wow. Okay, give them, give them a sense of purpose. Give them a J, help them get a J-O-D. 
you know, give them mentoring because it's all about mentoring and it works. Okay. And, and, and a lot of people who chose a good path might have had a mentor, be it a coach or a teacher or a parent. But for those who didn't, so this is, there are solutions to this stuff is what I'm saying. You can prevent all this. So, but it's also, it's a pandemic right now. Okay. Yeah. And throughout the world and, 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 there's not a single safe community out there. You know, not a single safe community. You can be the gated community, you can be in a castle, it doesn't matter where you are, okay? Or who you are, you know? Uh, and and that's, and that's, you know, but the good news is you have the Parkland students and people like them, who by the way, now I'm like, a, I guess like you're just something today, I just heard like on a 20 city tour, okay? And these students have all become activists. Um, and and they're not going to stop with, by the way, getting proper gun legislation. They're going to continue on with the environment, okay, which affects them. And they're going to continue on with debt, which affects them. The two things that I think are, are huge right now. You know, we have to get rid of all student debt. You know, it's, it's absurd that people's, people's uh, you know, DNA their education, both formal and informal, is all like thrown out the window when you have you get out you have to settle for the lowest level entry job, which has nothing to do with who you are and your trading, uh, just so you can pay your student debt. Which doesn't just screw you, it screws the entire entrepreneurial nation nature of the country, you know what yeah. I'm saying? So I mean because everybody's like, you know, settling rather than entrepreneurial. Anyhow the sort of it is so the good news is you know, you look at what the Parkland students and all the other students are doing now. You look at, you know, the incredible, incredible women's march. But 660 marches, you know, started by one woman. You know, you look at the Me Too stuff. You look at all the stuff. So yeah. we're, we're at a time of great, great, great positive social change with some of the biggest and most negative challenges going on, including, you know... You know, a, a Congress that's you know won't take a stand on anything, and and, and a president is you know absolutely insane. You know, half the time, <laughs> yeah. and 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 together another half the time. You know, yeah. uh, you know sometimes you know oh, yeah, I could go, I could take that, and the next minute he's like out of his out of his mind. You know, um, you know, so it's as they would say on Facebook back in the day, it's complicated. Okay? Yeah, so <laughs> um, you know, so but but. But I'm very optimistic because when I was saying like my, my father and stuff, I'd be like having stories. Everybody gets now, only they got like 15 years ago, the 99% thing, okay, or the 96% thing. Post-Occupy Wall Street, post everybody else gets that now, okay? Um, you know, it's consciousness, the, the, you know. The, and so there's the, the, the awareness, the consciousness come a long way. And so is the activity. And it doesn't just mean marches, it means all forms of social media or if you put up a good meme or share it. So people are very, very, the challenge is this, is we've been kind of grilled to think entirely in terms of electoral politics, which have been extremely disappointing, okay? Yeah. And, and not that one shouldn't vote. I did, you know, vote today, okay? You know, send my ballot and all that stuff. But, 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 but the point is, um, you know, uh, looking, politicians have never,
never really been the leaders, by the way. FDR, Roosevelt, he was not the leader at all. He was the follower, okay, of Woody Guthrie, of the unions, of his wife, of his colleagues, of everything that was going on. And then this relatively conservative, rich guy then became the FDR. We know him that, okay? Um, Bobby Kennedy, not very good at first in the civil rights movement. In fact, not only not very good, terrible. You know, as my father and others said, Bobby Kennedy would attest it. But then he started to change. He was also very pro-Vietnam War. In 1968, you were in New York State, you people protested against Bobby Kennedy everywhere he went because he was still pro-Vietnam War. But he changed, okay? He, because other people were doing things, friends, colleagues, the whole huge movement, sauce, everything. Um, you know, Barack Obama, what, on LBGTQ stuff? That guy knew better. He waited like four years to come out in favor of marriage equality, okay? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, the point I'm making is all these people were not the leaders, they were the followers who then kind of got there, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, you know, um, and so um, that's, that's the, the, you know, and so but we've been kind of always looking for, like, who's the Messiah politician? And there's probably not going to be one, okay? <laughs> you know, but there might be a city council person to help make things a little bit better in your city, okay? Uh, Etc. You know, in the context of other people trying to do things better in the city, the person on the city council might support it, okay? But, you know, so, but it's 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 more about other ways we can solutionate together. How can we, here's the good news, all systems are in flux now. Transportation, energy, education, health, none of them communication are going to be the same six or eight years from now. None of them. Yeah. Okay? So, is it, what kind of energy are we going to have? Are we going to still have, you know, destructive, you know, fossil fuel stuff or Canadian this or that? Or are we going to have, you know, all the different alternative things, which even, you know, GE and everybody knows this is why they put $20 billion of research into doing things like, the, you know, how you can get the different kinds of energy out of the temperatures of the Caribbean waters and stuff like that, equatorial waters. And yeah, so they, everybody gets it. The question is, are they going to exploit us and the Earth to the yeah. last second, you know, on, on, on things and energy they know are not going to work, or are they going to go the direction, let's say, Germany, which is going to be 90%, you know, solar in a place that's got more, you know, rain than Seattle, right? Yeah. Um, you know, so, you know, so the good news is we're for systemic change. Can we do solutions that are sustainable, humanistic, that help humans rather than tear humans apart? And that's that's where we're at at this moment in history, which my belief will turn very shortly into history and our our story, not just history, his story. You know. Well, well, it sounds like you got a lot of fight left in you. Yep, definitely. Well, that was the time, but but I gotta say something. You know, fighting the fight is fun. Even the Parkland students, with all the tragedy, all the tragedy around them of, 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 of watching their best friends die inexplicably for no reason, not because they were Walter and they were trying to drive the car too fast, okay? <laughs> and then they died, and then they died. Oh, Joe shouldn't have gone so fast. Yeah, you know, Joe shouldn't have there. No, they went to school that day, okay? And they died, okay? You know, they didn't die because anything of their so, so even those students that they're energized because they're doing something and they're doing something together, okay? And 
what gets depressing is when you sit around and you wake up in the morning and you look at the world and you go, yes, what can I do? That's depressing, okay? Really depressing. And so my advice to everybody is get five friends. It's a double piece of advice. Reconstitute your life right now. Get five friends who you can call at any hour of any day. One of those five and say, you know, what do I do about this? I don't know what about this funny thing. I don't know about this. I don't you know, and, and but make it a little bit, you know, we all kind of have that, but kind of almost institutionalize it like you're on my, you know, the way people institutionalized, uh, you know, on MySpace initially, my, my top this or my top that, yeah. Kind of say, okay, these are my friends. And then have another five, and then get a project of some kind, something you want to do, you know, start a coffee shop, start, you know, do something, sell something online, do a band. Do something cultural, do anything, and get five people who you're working with on that. Because between you, you have the skill set, yeah. you know, to that any five people can end up doing something, particularly in the age of the internet and internet sales and internet things. You could do, five friends could do something culturally tomorrow afternoon and shoot something that 15 million people could see on, you know, next, next Friday, you know what I'm saying? Um, and so if you get up in the morning and you got a sense of purpose because you have people you can rely on that you're kind of doing something with. Um, so in other words, you may go to work at your day job, but what five people are you working with? Maybe one of them is from your day job and one of them is from your past and somebody else you met in your community. What are the five people you're working on with something you'd all like to see happen together that could be rewarding? spiritually, financially, culturally, romantically, you know, all the above for people. And that's that's what the new to say the solution eight. Get your get your double teams together, your personal team and your project team. You know, everybody should have a team and make sure you don't just kinda of like flail about it. And a lot of people do have that, but kinda of realize like, oh, oh yeah, what's your team? And everybody should like know what their team you know. We can get that kind of set with you know it's clear that I have a team now oh I see oh yeah you kind of on your team is sure you know rather than just kind of letting it flow yeah, you need to not let it flow because the bad things aren't just flowing they're organized okay yeah that's a great message I mean don't you wish that you and the Seattle 7 had the tools that we have now social media you know in the 60s and 70s it would have been a different game probably wouldn't it well we're pretty good with the tools we have <laughs> it sounds um, like it oh, well, no, let me just say a couple of things. A, in Ithaca, we had a pretty press, okay? Uh-huh. And that pretty press printed stuff for uh, anti-war groups all over the fucking Northeast. And we put them on Greyhound buses, okay? Nice. And in Seattle, we instantly got a pretty press, okay? And we had a second one, which was the University of Washington, which we had one of our guys go there so we could basically illegally print stuff in the middle of the night as well as our own printer, okay? Um, we had newspaper. First thing you do is get to know the college newspaper editor, okay? The radio stations. We do everybody at all the radio stations, okay? So um, it is interesting to know how we ever met people at certain times and places without having a cell phone to do it. Yeah, right. Uh, you, you know, you kind of, oh, uh, you know, I remember my friend picked me up when I was coming back to the boat, you know, you know, picking up exactly that time. Anyhow, um, but the point is, uh, you know, we, and we also have, we had a lot of, you know, uh, public gatherings on little levels and big levels and, and, and a little less fear, okay, uh, in terms of relationships and stuff. 
And so, um, you know, AIDS hadn't come about yet and other stuff. And so, um, no, it was a time of tremendous education and communication. Um, had we had, what, the, what you're saying is also true. And the question, see, my mythological call is to take all these younger people that do have these tools and feed them. And, and, and in many ways, they're more educated than I am. And, and, and we are. But there's other holes of their education. So that's what I'm doing with the ER, Classic Tales to Fuel Our Future. It's our way of sharing our version of parables and stories, so to speak, that, that kind of fill in the blanks in ways that might be more entertaining than a book about the Seattle 7, although that book yeah. Kit wrote is a, you know, for those that can still read, is a good read, okay? Or want to read. But maybe somebody would like to see nine five-minute long things on the Seattle 7, okay? That have music and and visuals and talking. And, you know, so that's how I signal to that same story, right? And romance involved and all that kind of stuff. So it's more like, uh, you know, doing storytelling that's, you know, really exciting storytelling that within it can, you know, bring everybody up to speed so that those with the social media can did not have kind of what I might say is holes in their education. And yes, there are a ton of lessons to be learned that can be applied today, just like there's lessons in sports of, you know, how you do a certain kind of play or in dance or in music, how you do a certain kind of thing in a jazz riff or a rock and roll riff or something like or a blues riff, right? Um, the same is true that we can continue to share, including the musical stuff. So that's that's kind of what I see as kind of my goal and all our goals is to is to is to, you know, empower the younger generation, um, of which I happen to have um you know, a daughter, Keely, who's got a great band called Grunwasser, by the way, you can look that up, G-R-U-N-W-A-S-S-E-R, they're actually going on tour, they may have a tour date in Indiana uh, yes. in, in August, I'll check it, but um, they, but they're really good, Grunwasser, which means green water info, oh, nice. uh, or on Facebook, Grunwasser, and my daughter Annabelle is graduating this week from DePaul, you know, oh, so I've got two daughters for some reason, they decided to winter in Chicago. You know, don't ask me why. But uh, anyhow, uh, so um, yeah, the um, but I get how smart that generation is. But I also get the holes in their education that maybe we could fill yeah. in some way or another. You know, <laughs> many of which they filled in themselves. By the way, obviously culturally. Yeah. So you know, so so younger kids know. Hendrix, or they know, you know, the Beatles or soul music or stuff. They, you know, they just get that from their parents. They filled it in because it was good stuff, right? They wanted, to, you know, they knew it was good. You know, they knew it was eternal. You know. Yeah, and and, and I want to I want to paint you in the truest light for our listeners. You know, like cinematically, the dude is very laid back, but uh, but you seem busy as hell. I mean, you travel the country headlining appearances. You speak at college campuses. You're politically active. You know you've been involved in in some of the biggest independent films of all time. You know you have your own consultant agency, Blood Sweat Honey. You know you've helped start a lot of careers. When do you find the time to say fuck it, man, and, and just and just chill and just you know? It seems like it's nonstop for you. E- even tonight doing a podcast. Well, yeah, 
but that's all right. You know, they, 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 no, I turn it off on weekends in terms of, uh, you know, and you might even notice yourself. But, you know, I mean, you know, independent filmmakers would hound me all weekend long, okay? You know, uh, if, if I didn't say that. No, I turn on weekends or vacations or, or things like that, and I go out a lot, you know, at night, and, and, and you know, and, and on weekends I live, I live, you know, 100 yards from the Venice Boardwalk, um, and so, you know, we could go for a lot of walking meetings on the boardwalk, which is, you know, the, the Venice Boardwalk is the most integrated one-mile strip, certainly on the West Coast, if not in America, because it has every kind of tourist every day from every country in the world there, with every kind of tourist from every city in America, with every kind of person, including a lot of family people, a lot of kids, and, you know, little kids, and strollers and stuff from all over LA County, with all the people from around the city, but then you add all the Venice people on top of that, okay? So it's a real, you know, show 100 yards from where I live, you know, we can have like kind of entertaining meetings while we walk along and stop for coffee or food or whatever anybody wants to stop for, you know? So, um, but no, you know, you gotta keep a balance and I'm trying to keep that, you know? Yeah, and as I mentioned, you know, you've been involved in some of the the biggest independent films of all time, from Hoosiers to Blair Witch Project. You know, this podcast is is in Indiana tonight, so do you have any Hoosier stories that you want to share with us? Yeah, let me give you a really good Hoosier story. So, so when we did the premiere, it was a it was a combination. It was at the Circle Theater, which we brought in all the film equipment. We brought in the screen. They hadn't been a movie in there in 20 years. Yeah. It's a great theater. Uh, and mostly, I would say it was about 85-90% Republican crowd that night, okay? Um, but the only person from the movie that was there was Dennis Hoffman. Hackman was shooting like Superman 3 or something in London. Um, and, and so, but Dennis came in. Dennis of course, is the easy rider. He's also from Kansas, the local Midwest guy. So, so when seeing the movie, when it was over, Dennis, so there's like 2,500 people there. And once again, they're mostly Republicans. Okay, they're all paying like a hundred dollar ticket, which was a high end ticket or something. You know, to, to pay in, in you know Indianapolis for a benefit or something. Maybe two hundred was a lot. And and and. Dennis comes down the aisle, and there was a standing ovation with everybody that I was crying and applauding at the same time, because everybody got it. The Easy Rider was coming back to the heartland of America and being welcomed back, which also, you know, kind of mirrored some of the stuff in the movie where he was the drunken guy who happened to be the biggest drunk, but also happened to know more about Indiana high school basketball than anybody else, right? Yeah. And, and who ends up in, you know, a mental institution at the end, but but he's screwed for the team, you know? And it's come full circle, you know, with his son who's embarrassed by him and all that stuff. So, so, but it was an extraordinary experience in America, you know, of, of that one moment to watch the Easy Rider and the Middle American Republicans become one again, prove you can go home again, so to speak. I mean, it was an extraordinary night. Movie played well, and, and, uh, and everybody loved it and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, and of course, did very well in the air that we had time um, to uh, set up for Academy screens in December and other places and stuff like that. What was your involvement with Blair Witch? Um, I saw it very early on. We would, I would see things before the critics saw them, okay? Um, and 
I would see, I, mean, I saw a lot of movies before Sundance, so I helped him get in there, but, but then I would see movies, a lot of movies before, um, you know, the press stop, right? So I did an article, for example, in the LA Times in November, just after Sundance was locked, and, and they said, and I said, well, you know, there's going to be a whole, there's going to be a movie there, for example, that I think is the the example of a grunge rock or or NWA or something like that, a movie that was made for like nothing, yeah. but it's going to be very commercial. And, you know, like NWA did 9 million CDs with zero airplay, by the way, okay, um, and all in word of mouth, and, 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 you know, and obviously all the Seattle you know, grunge rock and all that stuff. So I was saying, you know, these guys are working at a garage band when they're going out and selling 9 million CDs. That, you're about to see the movie equivalent of that. And I knew it was commercial because it had been tested in Orlando to a commercial audience, okay? So there's no doubt that it was a commercial film. Um, that movie also had to be, the brilliance of setting that, and then Harry Doles got out, it was a good friend of mine too, they did call news, and then I did a couple more of those articles, and you know, stuff with Roger Eber, and you know, Premier Magazine, and all that stuff, and the angle with the, the journalist is somebody, I think it was an Arl movie, somebody just, there was some movie that just spent like $200 million, total piece of crap, that's <laughs> the idea, the idea was, Oh, look what you can do for fifty thousand and still be commercial, right? So all the all the press guys jumped on that. You know, in other words, you don't have to spend hundred million dollars to be commercial, right? This is the little engine that could. So that was the angle we got the press guys like Premier Magazine to push and stuff like that. Uh, but and so it was kind of and and Rebecca Yeldon wrote the greatest. Well, she should be getting money for us to life. She wrote the Sundance program notes, which, um, if you go back and look at them, are just like, you know, you couldn't have written them any better. But anyhow, so it was that combination. But the big point on Blair Witch was, it was the two points was, is it true or isn't it true, right? Oh, man, yeah. And and the second point, which thanks to Bigham Ring, he rests in peace, was Bigham said something like, it wasn't scary at all. I built a, says, I built a scarier sandwich than Blair, Blair Witch Project. <laughs> so the two, so what? So the deal was, you had to go see it to, to vote. Do you think it's true or not true? That's and awesome. is it scarier than just boring piece of shit, right? <laughs> and, 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 and you had to go to vote. Kind of like, I remember walking in New York City the day after Fatal Attraction, the day Fatal Attraction came out. Uh-huh. I walked in New York City at noon, and there was like 6,000 women lined up, right? You know, at theaters that during the day, taking off work, because every woman in New York had to go see Fatal Attraction, yeah. right? So they could talk about it the next day at work, you know, the next couple of days at work, okay? It was that same kind of phenomenon, okay? You had to see... You know the movie to, to have an opinion on. Oh, what Witch, was right? you, what was your opinion? Was it was it scary or was it a boring piece of shit? <laughs> oh, I thought it was scary, and my wife at the time thought it was scary too. <laughs> um, no, I thought it was no, I did think it was scary. Um, and uh, and then um, yeah, and then we did a couple other things. They were going to have the screen at midnight, and I think it was on the first Saturday night, which meant. On Friday night, that's the first Friday, the first Saturday night, that everybody would have come Thursday night for opening night, Friday night, so all the Friday nights stopped having parties. Saturday, probably a lot of people gone skiing, 
gone to the five o'clock party, gone to a seven o'clock movie, gone to the nine o'clock party, gone to a ten o'clock movie, and then Blair Witch is at midnight, right? Uh-huh. And I'm going, these people are going to be fucking, they won't even keep their eyes open at this point. So, remembering what Die Hard, I remember going to the Die Hard premiere in LA, and what Die Hard very smartly did is they gave out, they had these people walk in the aisles like they were old 1940s, you know, you know, candy girl type people, but they were giving out like cappuccino stuff and stuff like that. I mean, coffee, coffee beans, you know, covered coffee beans. They had, they gave out so much high octane caffeine candy type stuff that the room was shaking before Die Hard came out. I mean, I'm telling you, it was like ridiculous, okay? The, the notion was how can we drug everybody there, you know, and get them all like speedy legally, right? Through candy and coffee or die. So we said, let's, so we contacted Starbucks and we had a special Starbucks in the Egyptian theater at midnight, okay? Where we gave out free Starbucks with all these kind of candy stuff too, which were special coffee beans. So the whole place was like shaking by the movie came out. So yeah, we copied them. We stole that from Die Hard, you know. Let's, 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 let's drug them out at midnight. Die Hard learned at midnight, but they did purposely drug the people out so they go all speedy okay <laughs> <laughs> legally <laughs> as, as then we do it legally too and yeah we had that was, we had our own little Starbucks right there in the uh, three Starbucks in the lobby of the edition you know it's cool anyhow so yeah that was basically my kind of some of my contributions to the whole yeah, thing which, which is up. I think it might be the best viral marketing campaign of all time though I mean bare bones internet no Facebook no Twitter I mean, people really thought the Blair Witch happened, man. It was a big social spoof. I remember to this day, I was like, oh, shit, these kids really got killed in the woods. <laughs> yeah, well, Harry Knowles and Dana Kuhn News were a big part of that. Harry, in October, too, Harry and I saw the same talk about it. Basically, we had kind of talked, and he, you know, went out. And keep in mind, at that point, more people read Harry Knowles and Dana Kuhn News at lunchtime in L.A. than the entire combined readership of the New York Times and the L.A. Times. Not the entertainment section, of the entire combined readership of the New York Times and the L.A. Times nationally. More people read Harry Knowles every day. Wow. In, L- in L.A., okay? that's I mean, they were doing like 4.2 billion people and something like that at noon, wow. okay? I mean, it was really going wild. So it was just about the time Harry was going out. And once again, I'm telling you, the journalists helped on that because they... That was a. You got to do several prongs for your market. And their prong, once again, was, you know, fuck you to the studios for blowing money. Well, look at these little fucks out of Florida can do for buck ninety five, right? Yeah. You know, you know, and it's just as edge of your seat as these other things that are supposed to be edge of your seat. You know, you know, and, and they picked up on that, man. I mean, Premier really picked up on that, and and, and so did the serious critics who might not, if they had done it. There's. Instead of serious criticism, it was serious criticism of this. They could have done other things, but they did a criticism, but they did it as a, you know, more of a, uh, of a, you know, as a fuck you to the studios, you know, which was, you know, fit perfectly, right? That's how I got involved in it. Okay. Because how involved were you in the very early stages of Sundance? So I was at the first meetings. Wow. Of the, of the Institute, yeah. That's some history right there, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, we were doing. There were a couple of things we were doing in Seattle that intrigued Redford. One was that we obviously knew something about exhibition distribution. You know how important that was. 
And the second was, uh, we were writing a screenwriting class in which I put together four writers. You know, like, people had books out and stuff like that. Um, that I got the University of Washington sponsored it, Richard Javis and Kathleen and, and Jim and these guys were involved. University people too. And, and so we would have people every week from, you know, filmmakers because I could have them in, um, you know, I had like Jonathan Debbie because I could bring them up to do stuff for our theaters, right? But then we did have to stay, have to stay for three days for the, you know, film class too, like, you know, or Kirsten from Empire Strikes Back, or, you know, whatever. I mean, great, all the guys, you know, airplane, you know, all, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyhow, so the point was, um, you know, Sterling came up and spent a week with us up there and all that, but, uh, but we talked about the viewers and what Sundance, the Institute could be. Um, and um, I had been involved with Redford because we helped, he got, got involved with him to help take out the governor of Washington State, Dixie Lee Ray, and I asked him to do some ads, and, and, and we did that, but, but that's a whole funny story, that that's how he knew me, and then, <laughs> then, then Sundance was going to come about, so, but yeah, no, we were involved up, you know, what the vision of Sundance should be and all that stuff. And, they, and then the film festival came about three years later. There was an existing film festival, the American Film Festival already, but there was, you know, kind of for American independence. But Sundance didn't take it over until, I think, 84, so. Uh, let's see. Uh, um. what, what's next for the dude, man? Where's this adventure taking you next? Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, our, our classic tales to fuel our future, and, and but I, I'm thinking someone like myself can lend some shared experience and history of not just mine, but others that'll help empower this, you know, people that are, you know, greatly emotional now, you know. So that's what's in it for me, and, you know, it's, and we don't know, we're in very scary times, and we're in very fulfilling times, so, you know, we'll see, you know. Is there anything that I haven't brought up that you want to add to tonight's conversation? Yeah, but I forgot it. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Do you want to put in a situation if you feel you want to add something you can call we can add a couple other things or you got so much stuff you're going to have a hard time cutting it anyway? Yeah, I'll have to cut it anyway, but man, it's a, it's been a fun conversation though. No, no, stay in touch, okay? Oh yeah, thank let you. Me, let, me, let, me, let me know when you're going to run it and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, thank you very much for taking the time. Where can Videoland find you? Yes, they can email me at jeffdown6 at gmail.com. I'm on Instagram. Um, Instagram, it's jeffdown. Okay. Twitter, it's Jeff the Dude Dowd. Oh, I'm not tweeting a whole lot. When all the book stuff starts coming out, I'll be insane. But Twitter, Jeff the Dude Dowd. Instagram, Jeff Dowd. And uh, Facebook, I'm on. It's Jeff Dowd. But you have to get on the list of it. You know, to try to make it move for you and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Anyhow. And to all of our listeners, you can find us on adventuresinvideoland.com or on our Facebook at Adventures in Video Land. You've been listening to Criticism in its finest hour. Until next time, my good people, peace out. The dude abides. <laughs>